and welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. Apologies for the slight delay in getting the show up this week, but there's been a lot happening. I had to move, new setup, getting set up. It's a whole thing. If anything sounds different or is in any way inferior, I apologize. I do, of course, as always, have Kate Rennebaum here. Hello. Joining us again, you might recall if you were listening to the original run of episodes that our first guest post-pilot was Justine Smith. And for symmetry's sake, here she is again. Hi, thank you so much for having me back on the show. I'm really excited. Yeah, to be clear, it's just for symmetry. (laughs) No. What? (laughs) Simon, don't listen to Simon. (laughs) Uh, No, it's because you're great and we're we're very happy to have you. Um, I just wanted to to quickly say, as I sometimes feel the need to, uh, thank you again to everyone who's reached out on Twitter and via iTunes ratings and reviews about the show. It's, uh, it's a massive motivation factor for Kate. Um, as, as for always, I motivate purely out of spite. Seriously, it's great to hear. And I want to thank everyone for their, for their kind words. Uh, a couple of people were a little bit, uh, happened to mention that they were a little bit upset with us over our late season two coverage, but they did understand. They were happy that at least we sped through it quickly. So we thank you for your understanding. And we hope that if we happen to be a little bit critical in the future, uh, that you'll stick with us regardless. Anyway, the other thing I wanted to mention, because I just think it's just cool as hell, is uh, Kate, you recently got a new job posting. I just I, I just needed you to, 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 to pimp that out for us for a moment. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still I will still technically be finishing my PhD uh, next year. But in the fall, I will be teaching a course in French cinema at MIT, which is I'm very excited about. So Woo. oh, sorry. Could you remind me quickly where are you doing the PhD? <laughs> Jesus, I'm doing it at uh, at Harvard University, uh, which you know, hopefully gives me enough creds to be able to run a podcast about Twin Peaks. I think it does. I think it means that I uh, hopefully could get away with this. It's yeah, good. I don't know if anyone at home knew this, but occasionally in some interactions with people online and like the pop culture sphere. People can be a little bit condescending when you're uh, of the female gender. I don't know if anyone's ever heard about this phenomenon before. but um, It doesn't whole, exist, whole... okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, Justine, since you're here, you're the only person I know, like that I personally know, who's verified on Twitter. So congratulations for that. That's basically like going to Harvard. I'm literally famous now, and I can tweet at brands and they give me stuff. Nice. Has that actually that's happened? Awesome. No, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> you had me convinced. You should have just said that. Now, now, they people would have started doing that. Now, <sighs> oh shit. Okay, I'm I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start. I'll get back to you next time. Next season, there's not. A, next time you have me on, I'll update you on all the free swag I got by tweeting at them. All right, all right. We should probably get to Twin Peaks because there's a lot to talk about this week. Um, part five. The logline for this episode, by the way, is simply case files. I don't know if anyone's been paying attention to the uh, the episode descriptions that Showtime's been putting up, but it's it's been remarkable to me to go back and look at them to see that, oh yeah, those actually do map one-to-one to what's in the, these episodes in like an, a vaguely descriptive way. Um, and indeed, case files does relate quite cleanly to this episode. Um, I want to start with you, Kate, because you've just had the liberty of rewatching it, which I haven't had the chance to yet. So we get a few more returning characters this week some of whom we've seen already some of whom we had not some of whom it had to be explained to me after the fact were actually returning characters and i didn't know 
but we'll get there yes. later. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot in this episode, um, as well as a continuation of some of what we've already had. I mean, I guess my first question is, how do you feel like, do you feel like we're, we're starting to see um, a shape, like a recognizable form that this is taking that we might form, that we might extrapolate to imagine what the rest of this is like? Do you, do you mean sort of like a plot wise or in terms of kind of formal aesthetic quality anything, wise? Like anything. Do you feel like we're starting <laughs> to draw a map here? So you're basically just asking me, can you make sense of any of this? <laughs> this yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think so. I, I think it's interesting, like, a lot of the, the way that people have been responding to this particular episode is everyone is very pro-it. I don't think I've read any reviews that have been sort of negative about the most recent episode. Everybody is pretty gung-ho about it. But there is a lot of stuff that's starting to come out, which is people being a little more maybe hesitant about the Dougie stuff, like just wondering how long the Dougie stuff is going to go on for. And so it's funny because for me, I feel like people are starting to, it, it feels like people are sort of saying, um, well, once, once the Dougie stuff is over, then that's when the show is really going to start or something. And, and I, I feel like that's a bit of a, a dodge. And I, I, I don't, uh, I, I would personally want to push back against that a little bit because for me, I think the Dougie stuff is so perfectly of a piece with everything else that's going on here. And I think, um, I mean, in terms of plot stuff, I suppose I haven't really thought exactly about how, if there is a shape that's becoming clear to me. I mean, for me, I feel like every scene I'm completely engrossed in, despite the fact that even in this episode, again, despite the fact that we have returning characters, both from just this season and previous seasons, um, despite that prevalence of returning people, it still often feels like every new scene opens up something new rather than rather than builds on something we already had, right? I mean, that, it still feels at this point, five episodes in, like every every two out of three scenes or maybe every three out of four scenes feels like a new <laughs> a new direction rather mm-hmm. than a kind of continuation of what we already have which I, I love like I'm up for the ride like I I don't need it to kind of be honing in on something just yet so I, I'm fine with that but yeah now Justine we haven't gotten to talk about the new season at all yet uh, I mean how are you feeling about all this how I mean yeah, I mean, how are you? How are you feeling about it as uh, as a phenomenon that is like you know kicking around our, our world? How are you feeling about the conversation around it, and how are you feeling about the show itself? I'm actually really, really, really loving it. Uh, way more than I ever expected, especially since I think it's a. It while it's giving you a lot of what you want, it's really its own entity from the original series. Um, I I know that I tweeted a lot before the show even aired that I was really worried about the conversation that would kind of be swirling around it. Um, but it's really not as bad as I expected. Uh, maybe because the show was not what I expected it to be. I do feel that you have a lot of the commentators uh, who are trying a bit too hard to make sense of everything when it's very clear that um, it's really in the developmental stages. Um, I think there's a lot of joy in that. I know I can see how it can be frustrating for some people. Um, but I think every scene, every moment, I just find is so wonderful. Um, I think this episode was the first time that I started to have my own kind of apprehensions, just because it does feel kind of like, like, like I kind of what Kate was saying, that it's opening up more things, and we're already at episode five. But it's just... The visuals, the atmosphere, and uh, the characters. I, I'm really just loving every moment of it. Mm-hmm. I think for me, this episode is where 
when I had sort of my initial vision of what this might be like, this 18-part movie, or this 18-hour movie, as Lynch uh, sort of put it, um, I sort of had this abstract vision of what that might entail in terms of like narrative drive and how it might connect to previous aspects of the show. And I think this week is where I have to start to let go of that idea. Um, I think it's interesting that people, I forget whether this was Lynch or Frost who said this, but they've actually said that this may not be the end. Um, that they've, there might be an openness to more episodes. And I think just the fact that there's an openness to it suggests that we're not going to get the kind of sort of uh, drive and finality um, that one might expect out of the fact that, you know, this is coming so much later and so many of the returning actors are so old. And Lynch, let's be honest, is no spring chicken either, nor is Frost. And they, despite that, it's it's not being it's not being seen. Nor it seems was it produced as any kind of last hurrah. Although it does have these culminating elements, which I'm sure we can talk about. So I I feel like my understanding of what this is going to be sort of evolves a little bit, um, or will evolve a little bit every week. Um, it's it, my, the other thing is my perception of how this is evolving is so out of whack from watching four episodes in one day yeah. and then getting one episode two weeks later. So yeah, yeah it is an experience. Yeah, it's extremely everything about this is disorienting. Um for me, this I mean, I don't know whether it was if it was the least of the five episodes, it's it's difficult to like rank these things in a really explicit way. But I will say that it, it felt like an episode that had these three or four really outstanding or like particularly memorable elements or scenes or sequences and then the rest was pretty much um more of sort of more of what we've seen slightly elaborated on that's how it felt to me anyway i, I haven't had the chance to rewatch it like you have kate maybe, i mean maybe maybe we should start with dougie and i i, I want to give a quick shout out to the uh the writers and watchers over at uh, the ilx message board one of whom just said something that blew my mind which is connecting dougie to the douglas furs of coop's imagination which had not occurred to me and uh yeah that 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 blew my mind a little bit that's the sort of like semi-subtle connection that i want to give i i feel like i want to credit that specifically to frost Uh, i i feel like this episode for me is one of the episodes that makes me feel like in the past i've maybe been a little harsh on frost i mean I i feel like this is an episode where he really the presence of the kind of like writerly elements of Twin Peaks really comes to the fore. And mm-hmm. I think um, in, in the best way, I mean, it's interesting, it's interesting, Simon, um, to hear you say that you thought this was maybe one of the episodes that might fall towards the sort of bottom or something. Um, for me, I, I, a, I think if we were just ranking them, I, I would maybe put, I would put a lot of this episode above aspects of the previous episode. Um, but I think that there's already an interesting tension there in the fact that uh, so many of the things that, that work really well in case files um, shine a light backwards on some of the stuff that didn't work very well in episode four and, and maybe lend at least some credence to this idea that some of the things we didn't like there, like the, the way the Tammy Preston character was being treated or, or even some of this stuff around uh, Hawk and his relation, like the, these lines around Hawk needs to look at his heritage and all of this stuff, like maybe being a little ishy. I feel like it works so well. Like the, those kinds of similar dynamics work so well in the most recent episode that it, it very much renews my faith that what was going on in episode four was um, 
at least part of a larger scope in which it could be read as kind of at least sort of self-critical or at least aware of some of those problems. Um, I don't know. How does that strike some of you guys? I do see what you mean, but I think like the whole problem with the whole series though is especially like there's kind of this this uh, conflict or tension between the idea of it being a television show in the same vein as um, the original series and the kind of idea of David Lynch or someone else saying like, this is just an 18 hour movie. And if it's an 18 hour movie, this is like the first 15 minutes of a movie. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if we're fully equipped to kind of deal with the kind of repetitiveness of the first act stretched over five hours. Like, not that it's good or bad. It's just, it's it's not the normal television thing. And are we giving people, are we giving it too much leeway for, like, the the way that it structures itself or the way that it seems to sometimes not be moving forward or the things that don't quite make sense and kind of feel cause, like a, a conceit. Like, I kind of agree, like, the last episode, the heritage thing w- bothered me a little bit. Um, although this episode, you're right, like, I, I, like, I actually completely forgot that that was a, something that kind of popped into my head, because it, it was, I had no problem with it at all, the way that it's kind of moving forward or not really moving forward. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and I, I think the sequence with, uh, Hawk and, uh, Andy that happens late in the episode, where it's a long, it's a long take, and there's no dialogue, and then at the end, uh, Andy says, I'm looking through these files, he says, well, there's no Indians anywhere, there's no Indians anywhere, and, and Hawk says, you know, no, there isn't, and it's, it's, for me, it's like, that's a, a much sort of clearer example of, of Frost, um, and, and Lynch as well, obviously, like, writing this in a way where there is an acknowledgement of, you know, Twin Peaks's relationship to, like, the colonial history of the United States, and, and that being a theme of the kind of show this year, I mean, I think that that is a, a good example of that working. It works maybe less well in some of the other ways that it's been used in the past, but again, I thought it worked really well here. Um, I don't know, for me, like, that question of whether we're giving the show a lot of leeway uh, around its its pacing and stuff as we don't know where it's going to go later and how these rhythms are going to develop, um, I mean, of course, it's totally fair because we obviously don't know where things are going to go. Um, but for me, it's it's been interesting because I don't, I personally don't feel any... Um, uh, like, I'm not annoyed at all by by the pacing or, like, by the lack of things being completely clear. I actually find it very fascinating how interesting it is to read different people's reviews at the end of the show and, and see how differently people read, like, basic plot stuff. Because Lynch and Frost leave it so open, where it's like one scene connects to the next scene, and the way that those things make sense is read completely differently by different people, because the show's so uninterested in sort of being very, like, clear about basic information. Like, for example, the um, I read one review that talked about the car sequence uh, in this episode where there's the the guys who are trying to kill Dougie and then this other crew that shows up in the black vehicle. Um, you know, one reviewer read that as the second vehicle was like another set of assassins that had also been hired to like kill Dougie or kill mm. the first assassins. And, and I was like, well, I don't think that's true at all. They're obviously just car thieves. But I mean, you know, how, what do I know? I don't really know that. And then, for example, <laughs> as well, the at the end of the episode with... Um, when Mr. When Evil Cooper calls, uh, like he calls into the phone and says the cow has jumped over the moon, and and you know like four minutes later you cut to another scene in Buenos Aires and the little box disappears. I did not at all put together that that was like a result of Coop calling because there was so much sort of space between those scenes. It wasn't until I read other people talking about it later I was like, oh, Coop blew this up. Um, Anyway, that's maybe rambling, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of things that we didn't figure out until later or whatever, 
I didn't figure out until five minutes before we started recording this podcast that the employer giving Caleb Landry Jones a hard time is <gasps> Mike. Oh, you didn't figure that out? No. <laughs> no, I, I, read, I had to read about it too. I didn't make the connection at all. Huh. Yeah, I I, I didn't know he was returning. I had no, I mean, they do so little with his character. Like, Mm -hmm. they do a little bit more with him, like, near the end of season two with Nadine. But um, I'll be be extremely curious to see if they get a scene together. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, that would be uncomfortable, I expect. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, there's just, again, like, there are things that um, I, I haven't had time to dig into that I'm just fascinated to discover. Um, speaking of things I was fascinated to discover, um, the one sequence that I need for us to dig into in a major way is the Jacoby sequence. Oh, it's so um, good. It, it, actually, the Jacoby and Nadine sequence, technically, since this is the first glimpse that I can recall that we get of her in this in this new season. Um, I mean, we've already talked about this new season in terms of this you could have predicted it um, through line of aging, decay, and death. And what I find so fascinating about the there's a lot of things I find fascinating about the Jacoby sequence. First of all, and again, I I, I agree with you, Kate, that a lot of what's good about this episode, I, I feel like I want to credit specifically to Frost. The way that they're able to bring Jacoby into the 21st century. Um, is really effective, and the, the turning him into this like Alex Jonesy um, type, I feel like on paper it could be really hackneyed. But credit to Russ Tamblin and credit to Lynch's like direction and the editing, um, as well as that glimpse of Nadine watching, which I think does a lot. Um, that it it feels right for the character. It feels right based on what little we've seen of him, you know, in these golden shovels, which we find out. I can't believe it's it's only a couple episodes later and we find out what the golden shovels are for. I felt like we were going to have to wait till the finale to find that out. <laughs> um, this this the way that it connects that that theme of decay and and um, and sort of bodily decline to what feels like this very uh, zeitgeisty moment of governmental distrust and sort of alt righty furor. Um, I think somehow really like it also works on a character level it works on on a performance level it works on a writing level and it's also just really funny and um that and like it's it's, it had like there's been a few moments like this of things i just cannot imagine not only on the previous twin peak series but even in another lynch thing like the shot of the like the infomercial screen for the shovels Like that feels very new, and it also feels, and I, I again, it it feels a little bit like it connects to sort of the more absurd Adult Swim, um, sort of style productions that have come out in the last few years that have sort of appropriated Lynchian aesthetics. Um, so I mean, I loved everything about that sequence. I don't know about you guys. I loved it. I, I like. I mean, again, I, I think that there were many, many, many scenes in this episode that sort of blew me away. Uh, I think the Jacoby one stands out as maybe at the top of that list for 
any number of reasons. I mean, A, it, it just is quite funny. Like, you're laughing quite hard through a lot of it. And a lot of that is Tamlin's just, I mean, his, like, complete over-the-top, uh, you know, freaking out and, and having to, like, take a breath to breathe. He gets so amped up. I mean, there are, uh, Dr. Amp amped up. Um, there are funny, funny things there. But beyond that, I mean, I actually think it works really well at, at a larger um level in relation to the show, the show's own history, even what this episode is doing. I mean, this whole episode, there are many, many scenes that are very clearly about a certain kind of connection between um, the need for money, like this sort of organizing activity, everything around money, getting money, and then that being very clearly linked to a form of violence. I mean, there's a lot of this sort of... um, sense of just kind of general desperation around uh, the need for money. I mean, it, and, and, it, and it leading to violence. And so I think there is already this sort of larger political sensibility going on there with that, that we've talked about in the previous episode. But it's then very interesting to get something that is so kind of on the nose politically, because it's not very common in Lynch's work to get not something all. like, not at all, right? So something interfacing so directly with the kind of like political zeitgeist of the moment. Um, so, and again, like maybe that is more from Frost's side of things, but it, it works so well here with Lynch's larger, like, political interest, I think, in the sort of affect of the current moment, which I, I'm trying to describe maybe as the lack of, like, the love uh, elements in in the current show that we used to get in the old show, the lack of these sort of spaces of, like, innocence and naivete and love are, are yet to be found here, really. Uh, and maybe one exception to that, an interesting exception, is um, a sequence I'm sure we'll come back to, but is Amanda Seyfried's moment mm-hmm. when she's high on drugs. And you get this sequence of, like, ecstasy and joy, but it's it's tainted, right? I mean, it's coming from a very problematic space. So, uh, anyway, so that... so Let's all judge back to this. No, I, I mean, maybe not. I mean, she's having a good time, but it seems like there's worries around it. Um, anyway, we can come back to that. But all to say, like, the, the Jacoby stuff, I think, I just think they nail it. And, and it and it raises some really interesting questions around things like, I, I appreciate the fact that the show seems to be looking in the eye things like, you know, Twin Peaks is probably a town where a lot of people would have voted for Donald Trump. And, like, this show is, is like, acknowledging that. I mean, I, I think that's really fascinating. And it's not necessarily doing it in, like, a didactic or, or judgy way. I mean, it is a little because, obviously, you're supposed to get that Jacoby is nuts. But it, it's, I don't know. I, like, I haven't figured this out yet exactly. What do, what do people feel about that? I, like, I'm totally on the same page as you guys. I loved every second of it and I love that there's kind of this weird build-up where you're wondering what the gold shovels are and it kind of harkens back to uh, the original series the way that people are trying to figure out the grand mystery and then it turns out to be an infomercial Um, and rather than feeling mocking it just feels really playful and yet there is that dark undercurrent because you kind of know the like real life parallels. Um, My thing that I wanted to know is like um, I do think it's it could easily come from Mark Frost or David Lynch or both of them. But you know that Lynch was really into the YouTube thing with his weather reports and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, if he's engaging with YouTube, he for sure, if it's not Alex Jones, it's some of these other kind of, like, crackpot crazies. And, like, even with, like, Alex Jones is, like, a, a very evil man. Like, just, like, just on his, uh, the, what do you call it, the Sandy Hook stuff. Like, you can, there's a lot of problems. No apologies to the Twin Peaks Alex Jones crossover crowd that may be listening. <laughs> awful, awful human being. But at the same time, you can see why someone like Lynch would be so fascinated by the performance. And um, same with Frost. Like, there's so much there. And what kind of works, though, is there's this element of pathos that, like, kind of is interjected, not necessarily through Jacoby himself, 
um, but through the engagement with the listenership. Yeah. Um, I also think we have this kind of connection to the theme of electricity, um, the kind of passing mm-hmm. of ideas and the engagement of culture with the individual and how there's kind of this um, sometimes toxic relationship between the two or like um, not necessarily toxic, it could be spiritual. Um, and the other thing that I was really struck by, like the whole series so far, like there is clearly this question of identity, especially with Coop, who's kind of separated into these three people. A lot of the characters are not what they seem. And for me, Jacoby in the original series uh, was kind of this character who wore a mask or a, not necessarily a mask, but like a costume of a therapist, right? And he's just mm-hmm. wearing a different kind of costume to kind of cover the fact that like he's kind of empty and uh, but seeking an attention and seeking love in a very disturbed way as if he doesn't even understand what that quite is. That's a really astute point, actually, I think, Justine, about Jacoby and the, the costumes. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but it is. I think it's great because I think it shows so clearly the intelligence of what Frost and Lynch are doing with that character now in the sense of looking back at Jacoby, it's very clearly revealed that this performance of the therapist, and, and again, it wasn't a, a, a costume that always fit very well. As I commented on a lot in the earlier episodes, Jacoby was often really not a great therapist. Uh, in fact, a sort of horrifying therapist a lot of the time. But um, um, but there was also this sort of larger thing around him, right, of this kind of new agey discourse of this sort of spiritualism, this like Eastern spiritualism stuff uh, as this sort of 80s, you know, me generation, like po- uh, middle class kind of hippie who's become this sort of like middle class figure, new agey spiritualist person. Um, what's fascinating now is that you flash forward, you know, 30 years almost, and Jacoby's like costume that he's putting on in terms of his... Uh, like emotional, like an effective relationship to the larger world is now one of anger. Like that, that sort of like post hippie thing, middle class thing has now become just anger. Like, I I actually think that's really fascinating because that's what's so fascinating about his speech and the way that it like reflects interestingly on, you know, this kind of Trumpism, like nationalist stuff where a lot of what's actually being said in the speech is just outright nonsense. Like he just lists these words that are crazy and then it's interspersed with things like, where are the police when you need them? Um, and I, I don't want to swear because it'll make more work for Simon, but there's some truly great swearing bits in that speech as well. But anyway, the words are not like, it's, it, he's not saying anything substantive. There's no like argument or claim or, you know, saying we should do this or about that. It's just, anger. And and I actually think it's quite fascinating, Justine, as well, that you pointed this out, that then Nadine, on the flip side of that, is this, you get these shots of her, like, smiling benevolently, like, benevolently, and these pathetic shots, like, looking back at Jacoby. It's such a very, it's a very weird disconnect there. And I, and I, I don't know yet exactly what it's doing, but I think it's doing something smart. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I was really worried about the prospect of sort of contemporary political discussion potentially creeping into this show because as our guest Ethan sort of alluded to, um, Mark Frost seems to be very much like a standard issue, milk toast American liberal. Like I'm sure he's watching the Comey trial with, with like bated breath, hoping for articles of impeachment that are never going to happen. Um, you know, just like really stuff that has no interest to me for anyone who, for anyone who's not clear on this, like I'm, very much more on the socialist end. And I've been delighted, in fact, to discover since starting this podcast that there is, like, 
real crossover between Twin Peaks fans and American socialists. Yep. So that's been like just delightful to discover. Shout out to y'all. But I have to say that like the, again, the Jacoby sequence is just masterful for the way that we we have to consider that like when this was being written and produced, obviously none of it was happening after the election. Um, you know, it was all very much pre-Trump getting elected, but that doesn't diminish the fact of these obvious divisions and this political alienation that, you know, essentially half or over half or just under half of America feels from the political process. And having Jacoby, who's, as you say, his expertise has sort of always been questionable. And the way that dovetails with our current moment where expertise itself is sort of looked on with skepticism because, you know, experts have gotten us where we are and where we are kind of sucks in a lot of ways for a lot of people. And I don't know, I, I just find it, it's too early to, for me to know exactly if I'm going to like where all these things are, are landing over time. And this is, you know, liking things as they develop over time and where we land with them in a, in a, in a positive or a negative sense. Like there's more to talk about that, like on that score, but with other things. But I have to say this sequence was extremely encouraging for me for like folding in contemporary or semi-contemporary concerns in a way that feels like it doesn't, A, it doesn't betray sort of the sensibility of the show and B, it doesn't feel ham-fisted in a way I might expect from like other sort of American liberal writers. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there are other like big sequences here that make sense in terms of the kind of like political question around these new episodes uh i'm not i think there is yeah it's the um ongoing storyline with the little boy and his mom i think like that was definitely like there's always been like drugs or like the insinuation drugs but i don't think that there's i think it's a direct reference to the crisis that's happening in the united states i don't think it's just a cool thing that's happening it's very precise i wanted to bring up the drug stuff as well uh justine because i think it's 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 been interesting um I actually find it. I'm not. I'm not that on board with this this thing that's been happening a lot in the recaps, uh, which again I completely understand why because these poor people have to write these recaps like in the middle of the night. They're due the next morning, so it, it totally makes sense that they would be. They might become a little homogenous with people picking up on the same things across them. But um, a lot of the response to the Amanda Seyfried character, uh, who is playing Shelley's daughter Becky Burnett. Uh, is is that, you know, oh, she's this new Laura Palmer figure. She's this very clear reference to Laura Palmer and all of this stuff. And I I mean, sure, I, I guess, like, there are, there are kind of obvious links there at the beginning, but I, I also feel like a lot of that tendency to just sort of say, like, oh, this is the show redoing itself or whatever, or, you know, the Caleb Landry Jones character, her husband, Stephen, is like a Bobby or a Leo. I mean... For me, it becomes a way to not actually pay that close of attention to what is actually going on with the new characters. It's like, I, there are interesting connections, but I don't think it's all exactly the same either. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the, um, the Becky character in relation to people like the woman in the housing development is the idea that whereas in the old series, drug usage was almost all concentrated around Laura. And it, and it, in a lot of ways became, the, the drugs were always very much connected to like a very specific set of traumas that were being managed. Like not even traumas, but like really horrible violence was basically leading to the need to use drugs as a sort of coping mechanism thing. And then it was sort of infecting outwards from that. Whereas here, we get nothing like that. There is, there is no sort of like originary psychological events that are, that are attached to this sort of drug use. Instead, it is just 
it is just pervasive and destructive and like everywhere. Um, and I, again, I think that really much, that really relates to this larger sense of a kind of like just political, uh, yeah, like depression and, and, and fear that's sort of very prevalent in the whole new show. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering about, you know, people, we, there's been a lot of discussion about the musical sequences as well, but I find it fascinating that the, the roadhouse is now like really hopping, you know, this, it used to be this sparse local hangout that like, you know, you can imagine yourself like driving across the U S and like happening upon it. And just, you know, it, it, it happens to be this like ethereal place that's one quarter full and you know there's this weird lady singing a weird song and now it seems to be like full of dancing hipsters the only thing that i don't buy about these sequences by the way is that the hipsters are actually dancing Um, i know there's no way that they'd be dancing without (laughs) riley lynch uh like jazz uh, saxophone guitar riff it's not gonna happen they're totally doing the standing still in that place um but uh, oh, by the way, I just have to say that the use of uh, I, I, I can't remember the name off the off the top of my head, but the use of the Dirty Beaches guy, who's a Montreal musician, uh, was really inspired, a really inspired choice for um, and a really appropriate choice in a less obvious way than chromatics are for inclusion on the show. I also appreciated that it didn't end the episode, which like I was starting to get worried that they were going to do that every episode. And the fact that they didn't this week was like a huge relief for me. Anyway, this notion of sort of Twin Peaks maybe becoming somewhat gentrified is interesting. Uh, again, I don't know if this is something they're going to do like an explicit thing with going forward, but I am kind of um, I'm kind of interested to see if it tracks anywhere. Just for the people who are listening to this podcast, it's very hard to like. It's very different doing these podcast episodes than it was doing the old ones. It's quite interesting actually because I feel like the conversation is like the first time that we get to think about a lot of these things. It's not like. There's sort of reading or writing out there about it or people have had time to digest this stuff. So I'm, I'm like trying to think of off the top of my head how to get at that question. Because like the, the next thing that I thought of when you mentioned that, Simon, was the, this sequence with um, with Mike uh, Helgenberger and the Caleb Landry Jones character, Stephen. And Stephen is this sort of whatever he's supposed to be, like mid-20s guy applying for some kind of job in whatever whatever place that's supposed to be. It's sort of this like unnamed kind of middle managementy paper pushy type looking place. Yeah. And this this guy's trying to get a job in it. And 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 Mike is so offended because he he's like failing to follow the kind of um standard practices. Yeah, he, of this he calls sort of him space. in just to ream him out for how crap his resume was, which as someone who's put together some really crap resumes, um, it was a, quite an amusing sequence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have a hard time imagining like a scenario like that in the earlier season, right? Like, like in the earlier seasons, you know, you don't necessarily have people working like middle level office jobs. I mean, unless I'm forgetting something very off- obvious, but it, it doesn't, that feels like yet another one of these sort of newer, very bland spaces that is kind of like uh, occupying a lot of the, the visual geography of this new show, which I have found increasingly interesting. Like, for example, the, um, that the Lucky Seven insurance place where Cooper works with its like bizarre, uh, kind of open, you know, Las Vegas-y, I don't even know how to describe it, like open area in front of the building, uh, and then the inside of the building. It's just this like these very bland office spaces. And again, it's like these new places that Lynch sort of finds and is able to just make them seem very weird and uncanny and unusual uh even though they're by definition so bland and boring i I don't know so maybe this is a good place to talk about one of the actual predictions that people had about this season that i think have maybe come true 
is this idea that this new season in the way that the original series kind of riffed on soap operas, which it seems like this new series is not doing just as, as a rule in that way, this new show seems to be riffing on prestige TV and you can pick up on a lot of that. If that is in fact a thing where, I mean, we can keep watching and see if it ends up being a through line or just something we imagined in some sort of over over reading of critical ideas. Hayes. Um, but specifically in this episode, I mean, we get a little bit more of, um, the home that Jamie E, Jamie, what a weird name she has. Janie E. Janie E. Janie E. Um, uh, and Dougie share. Um, and it feels a lot like the homestead in Breaking Bad in terms of the immediate surroundings. It feels a lot like that New Mexico sort of open like that open plain around around a summer bay area type uh, type geography the entire feel of of the Dougie plotline actually really reminds me of the Kevin Finnerty stretch of the Sopranos when spoiler alert Tony's in a coma and he imagines like another life for himself it seems to recall that I, again I don't know if this was deliberate but I, I have been thinking of it the office environment makes me think of Mad Men, specifically like the elevator sequence really makes me think of that. And this like weird, this like ill-fitting suit it seems to work almost as like a Mad Men parody. Again, I don't know if these things are deliberate, but they certainly don't feel connected to the original series. It's difficult to not want to connect that to some things that have come sort of in the in the recent past. Yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from, but I think maybe I... I don't watch as much prestige television. So like most of the shows I have not actually watched in any, like I've watched some Breaking Bad. I've watched some Sopranos. I've watched almost all of Mad Men. And I definitely see the connections when people bring them up, but I'm not sure if it's deliberate or, um, or what the overall purpose is. Like for me, like, the connection to the original series and soap operas felt a lot more streamlined. So if this is specific, this is actually meant to evoke or to be making a commentary on prestige television and particularly those shows. I don't, at least at this point, I don't know what the, why. It's not that your argument doesn't make sense. I think there's a lot of evidence to support it, but it doesn't make thematic sense. Maybe it's a bad, maybe it's a problem in the show or maybe it's just like a coincidence. I don't know. I, I definitely don't think it's a problem. I mean, I, it, it feels like, if I had to guess, it just feels like Lynch and Frost having fun. Like it feels like they're they know that it's been a long time and they know that TV itself has changed a lot and it feels like they're having fun sort of toying with the visual tropes of of prestige TV. Again, I could be imagining all this. I could be uh drawing drawing connections that were No, the other reviews but, talked but. about Breaking Bad at least for sure. I read a, a few that were touching on that, especially for this episode. It's it's definitely there. I mean, e even in the pilot, like everybody referencing things like Lost. Uh, I mean, for me, I felt a lot of X Files here and there throughout. I, like, oh, I, oh, oh, oh X Files! No, no, the cigarette pack. Oh, totally. Yeah, because it's the same brand. It's the cigarette smoking brand. Yeah, yeah. Man's brand, right? I completely yeah. forgot about that. <laughs> um, no, I, I do think it's there. I mean, I think at this point, it's very difficult to tell. Uh, like, as Justine gets out, maybe maybe 
what's going on and the choice to, to do this kind of like referencing work. Because I think maybe I said this on the last podcast, but like if the soap opera was so, soap opera slash the kind of mystery genre was, were the two framing devices for the old show. You could always tell there that both of those were done with a very, like a sense of love. I mean, it wasn't that they were kind of condescending to those genres. They, they love the genres. And so they were very much enjoying using them. And, and while I do think that's here a little bit, it's like, prestige television right now is maybe it's difficult to kind of conceive of those as something you might love in the same kind of way. And I, I do think that maybe, maybe what is going on that is interesting in terms of like them, them utilizing these tropes that are common to these sorts of things, uh, it is again, the way in which it sort of almost reflects back the bleakness that's pretty inherent in a lot of those kinds of shows now. Right. I mean, it's, these are not, um, I think if if Twin Peaks were to be doing more of its sort of soap opera like, you know, lovey dovey kind of melodramatic stuff on on this current television landscape, it would stick out like a sore thumb. So there's there's something very smart that they're doing here by kind of integrating into the kind of current landscape while maybe pulling it apart a little bit from within. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know. Well, and there are moments in the show, in this new series, that are imp- that, I mean, there's lots of moments that are impossible to imagine on sort of other on prestige tv and we one day we'll talk about whether or not this this season counts as prestige tv but um you know these those moments of sort of um these emotional ruptures like that very clear callback we got to the original series in the previous episode with bobby and the and the portrait Mm -hmm. um or in this episode when we have and we we haven't really talked about dougie yet which takes up the lion's share of this episode so we really should um, but the scene of him looking at Dougie's son seeming to well up in this like very overt display of emotion. The equivalent sequence on Mad Men would have featured John Hamm looking out into the middle distance wistfully, yeah. but like not in that overtly uh, a tragic way. You, you can see them playing with that kind of emotional modulation. Well, I think if you are talking about the show having a conversation with other prestige television, you can directly pinpoint the fact that why would David Lynch continually, or David Lynch and Mark Frost, um, create a series about the most bleak thing possible, if you go to the original especially, like incest, murder, um, all these really awful topics, and yet be whimsical and still have this kind of Mm -hmm. joy. What was the it kind of is like a self-commentary. It's like, why does why does life have to be so bleak? Because a lot of these shows, even if they're funny or if they have these humorous elements, I do find there's a like an unfair bleakness in everything mm-hmm. um, when the reality is life is not like that or maybe life, we don't want life to be as bleak as these shows make them seem. Or, or sometimes it's it's... It's bleakness that is almost um, like for it's for an easy explanatory term, you could say like bleakness porn or something. Like it's it's too like it's it's um, misery cathartic porn, in the I sense of it the misery porn. Yeah, that's the term. Yeah, it's like it, it's cathartic in the sense of it. It sort of. Uh, like delineates the misery into an easily understandable box that you can sort of say, well, at least that's not my life. Um, and again, we should all acknowledge that we're kind of like middle class white people. Like we are, we are approaching this from a very specific set of things. I think there are many, many, many people who are living right now who would think that TV is probably not bleak enough. Uh, and so that, you know, like this is a ongoing question, but, um, I do think that uh, one point I wanted to add about the this notion of like maybe what it's doing in terms of reflecting back sort of prestige television stuff, and I think Simon, you were kind of pointing towards this, 
is this the way in which like Lynch, you know, just and Frost too, like masterfully and just single handedly kind of shows how maybe aesthetically kind of um, straight or almost homogenous a lot of that prestige television making is, right? I mean, even the more unusual stuff like Mad Men, which, you know, we shall say no bad things about Mad Men because Mad Men is amazing. But, um, like, even even shows like Mad Men, they, they, still, fall, they still fall within a pretty, um, uh, like, predictable set of kind of... Uh, stylistic choices that you're going to expect from that show. Like it sets up its tone and then it follows that tone. Twin Peaks, it's like, you know, we can say things like, oh, well, Twin Peaks has these kind of stylistic modulations where it goes from like very funny to very dark in a quick moment. And it's like, it's it's often difficult to come up with like stylistic markers that you can explicitly name beyond those kind of vague descriptors because it is so just like wacky from scene to scene. Like it's very, yeah. it's not, you know, so I, anyway, I find that quite interesting as There's well. There's been so much more like visual aesthetic variation just in these five episodes than you get on like i love you know i also love mad men i love breaking bad i even love i also love better call saul breaking bad and better call saul have a very specific um visual vocabulary you know they've got the 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 gopros or whatever hooked up to objects they love those shots they love these particular you know saturated colors um they love these particular types of music cues they love to um do cryptic cold opens. They love certain types of structures, etc. Mad Men, the aesthetic stayed pretty much identical pretty much the whole way through um, with a few slight digressions here and there. Um, but like Lynch is not interested in that kind of aesthetic discipline, not casting aspersions on those series. I think they did great, great things uh, for the form. But yeah, it, it seems like uh, deliberately or not, the new Twin Peaks is kind of structuring in these callouts to these other shows. And I, I, w- I want to also mention True Detective, which I know that Lynch has watched because he's mentioned it, that he, he I liked the characters, um, is what he said. And, you know, we do Why is David these... Lynch so fun to do impressions of? I don't know. <laughs> but I invite everyone who comes on the show to do a Lynch impression at some point. That includes you, Justine. <laughs> I think it's because it's easy. I think that's why it's yeah. Fun. <laughs> and there's like a wholesomeness to it. You don't feel like you're like mocking. It's like oh, no, it's like no. out of love. It's a yeah, exactly. loving I'm impression. Lovingly mocking, yeah. Um, anyway, it when you when you structure in these call these 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 callouts to these shows, it it doesn't feel like um the 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 relationship doesn't feel obvious. Um, and that's what that's something I'm I'm sort of gonna. I, I feel like I say this. I'm gonna be saying this every week with these new episodes. It's something I'm gonna be keeping track of. Uh, because I feel like we, this is the the beauty of like covering a new seat like this this new season is that I feel like every week we've still only like I think about shots like when uh, when Coop slash Dougie gets like sucked through the uh, the electric outlet and like and there's Garmon Bosia and shoes getting lifted on the other side and like there haven't been any shots there weren't any shots preceding it that look like that. And there haven't been any shots since. And like, that's amazing to me that like uh, that next week we could get something totally new or the week after we could get something totally new from whatever we got in the week in between is like extremely exciting. And even like quick, very quick digression, but Kate and I are massive fans of the leftovers, which is like to, to my mind, one of the greatest series to have ever aired. And I think if you're a twin peaks fan and a fan of like, 
prestige or like auteur TV in general, you you owe it to yourself to watch. Even The Leftovers, for all its like left turns and surprises and digressions and evolutions, still operated within a certain amount of within a certain like frame of aesthetic and formal discipline. And it doesn't feel like those railings exist here. No, I mean, I think one of the main ways that we could see it, and we haven't really talked about it yet for the new episodes, but is is performance. Is, again, like Lynch's willingness to just push performance beyond uh, what is acceptable on kind of current day television. And the, the sequences here where it's it's most um, noticeable, and, and again, I really loved this sequence, was the sequence with Doris Truman, Sheriff Truman's wife, uh, like yelling at him in the office for, I don't know, 10 minutes about things like, I don't, I, you, I'm not the bucket and the, I'm not going to wait for this to get fixed. And, and it's so sort of excessive as to be like almost meaningless, like the string of complaints from this woman. Um, but it, for me, the performance style works. Like it, it's, it's funny, but at the same time, because it is so extreme and it's so over the top, it reads as like, you pay more attention to the kind of uh, content of what she's saying in a certain way than you would if it was like a realist depiction where you feel like you're supposed to be reading the scene to understand like the psychology of this woman and her connection to Sheriff Truman and their history or something. You're not reading it at all for that. It becomes about like, again, it kind of becomes about the economics of their life together. Like her complaining about their car being broken, her complaining about the pipe being busted. Like all of these things stand out in a way that I think if the, if the scene had been performed differently wouldn't have come to the fore. Um, that was my one performance person I really loved. The other person I wanted to give a shout out to, and I'm embarrassed I didn't look up the actor's name, but is the guy who plays like Dougie's aide in the office, the one who gives him the coffee and the one who sort of walks him around. Uh, he had a bit part on 30 Rock as like Liz Lemon's agent slash a dog agent. He Anyway, that actor, like he, I, I just thought it was such perfect casting, him as this sort of bumbling office guy who does things like tries to leave the boss's office but can't get out the door. I mean, I, I just thought all of that was great. Since we're at this point in the episode, I wanted to mention, and I feel like, again, like so much of covering this new season is going to be zigzagging of like mentioning something I'm not sure about and then coming around to it a couple episodes later. But there are a couple of things in this episode I wasn't sure about <laughs> and I wanted to mention them. Um, first of all, the first like bit of casting that I'm just not like that kind of pulls me out a bit is Caleb Landry Jones. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, I thought he was great. Just because I've I've seen him in a few things and he like especially most recently of course and most famously in Get Out um which like he always plays kind of the same type of character this kind of like dirtbag over the top like creep um I'm sure he's a lovely man in real life, but it's very much what he gets cast as. And I don't know. It's like, I had a difficult time imagining, like I was thinking about, and I realized that like the lineage being depicted has maybe like questionable choice in men. But even then, like I, I had a difficult time imagining like what the Amanda Seyfried character would have ever seen in this, like over the top, like Nicholas Cage and raising raising Arizona, like level screw up. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Nicolas Cage because for me, actually, Olivier came up with this comparison and I thought it nailed it. Was uh, For him, he was like, oh, that guy, Caleb Landry Jones, he reminds me of Bobby Peru, who, for people who don't remember, Bobby Peru is uh, the Willem Dafoe character in Wild at Heart, which is the, right, the Lynch yeah. film Other people that has have Nicolas made Cage. that connection, yeah. 
Oh, have they? Interesting. Okay, because yeah. for me, that like they physically look alike. Although realistically, the character in that episode who maybe is the closest to Bobby Peru is the Richard Horn character who turns up at the bar at the end. This like character we know nothing about is just sort of horrendously violent to this woman. Um, but anyway, I, for me, I I I, can, I get it. I I could see the Landry Jones stuff. It worked well enough for me. Um, I do feel like maybe we'll need to get a little bit more of that to really see how it is going to play out. But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm. I guess what what I'm missing is that like I feel like if if we get one moment of him being like really lovely, it'll fix everything. But as long as he's mm. just like this over the top, like gnarly, disgusting little man, like it's I'm gonna really struggle with that. Again, this is like all extrapolating because it's clear that like they maybe got together under other circumstances and things have maybe changed or something since. But you can at least tell that he's like trying to be sweet to her in the car it's just sort of failing uh yeah, and he's Caleb creepy. <laughs> he always looks like he's been like punched in the face and is about to develop a blue a black eye like every time and he always looks like he's he's deserved the punch i think that like makeup artists love his face because if you don't put makeup on it he looks so nightmarish and like i and it, there's very few faces that look that authentically awful like, not that he's ugly, but his skin tone is so, like, transparent. So you have, like, that those dark sunken eyes and that kind of grayish tint to his skin that, like, you can't really recreate. It's like, he, like he's maybe he's born with it. I don't know. It's I, As a side note, it's, like, why he works so well, uh, the casting works so well in Get Out, because it's, like, he's... He's like whiteness to the push to the point of grotesquerie, mm-hmm. that guy. It's like, it's like whiteness to the amplified extreme. Yeah, he's like the royal um, family. <laughs> like literally yes. whiteness is a sickness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, it's very true. And Okay, well, but since we're talking about like faces and crazy stuff, we haven't talked about this yet, so I wanted to get it on the table, is for my money, I thought this was an amazing sequence, the sequence with Evil Coop in the um, yes. in the jail. There's a ton of amazing stuff with Evil Coop in the jail, but uh, we could start with the one with the um, at the beginning when he's in the cell and he goes to the mirror, and you get the cut back to the uh, the the sequence from the finale of the first series mm-hmm. with Coop and the and Bob, and it's cut really interestingly. I thought even that was just genius, this like recutting of it uh, in almost a boomerangy kind of way. And yeah, and then this amazing CGI effect with with Bob appearing in Coop's face. Yeah, there's this is another thing I find so fascinating about the new series is as much as it's willing to break from the past aesthetically, formally, etc., it can't seem to keep itself from these very explicit connections to to specific plot and character points from the original season, uh, from the original series. Like, I mean, obviously the Bobs, like getting, we, we see footage from the original final sequence of the series. We get Bob appearing in the mirror elsewhere uh, because I, I'm, I'm only going to mention this because it relates to my specific point. We have a sequence of the new Sheriff Truman on the phone with the old Sheriff Truman who we are reasonably sure is not going to show up on screen at all. I'm, uh, I'm like a hundred percent positive. He's not coming back. Michael and Keen. Yeah. So, which is like it. And I think they know that we know that <laughs> and like them taking like a minute or two of our, of our time to acknowledge his absence and like theoretically have him on the other end of that phone. Again, it feels like it's one of the few things about the series. Like this is maybe something worth discussing, which is like that, the things like that, like having um, the old Sheriff Truman be off sick and having him off screen and like talking to him 
and having these one-sided phone conversations are very much like old school television. Like oh, totally. they're like very much, they're the closest thing we get to sort of soap opera style television of like having to work around a specific aspect of production. Whereas the rest of the show seems to have caught up more or less to the fact that it's in the prestige TV era era. So the fact that there's like some things about the show that are still like creaky and old fashioned, I find fascinating, but to return to, uh, to evil coop in jail, um, the mirror sequence is incredible. And I just want to, I, I need to specifically give a shout out to Kyle McLaughlin for the way that, um, with not a lot of dialogue between them, in fact, very, very, very little, he manages to totally drive a psychic wedge between, um, evil coop and Dougie. Uh, I mean, not to mention like regular coop who we have barely seen if at all in, in this new season. And like, it's remarkable that like the ostensible star of the show and a, a guy who we know so well, um, in terms of if you if you've watched Lynch things, you've seen so much of his acting. He's developed such a, you know, you've developed such a picture of him in your mind. It's amazing that he's able to, um, through sheer physicality, draw out these totally separate entities. Like that's a really remarkable feat. He gets such mileage out of lines as Evil Cooper that shouldn't be that terrifying and yet are. It's like, like even even the line at the beginning of that scene where he's lying in the bed and he says something like, and now food is coming. I'm like, I can't do it. I'm not an actor. But it's like the way that McLaughlin delivers that line is so unnerving. And you're like, why is he saying this? Who is he saying it to? What, what is going on? How does he know totally. food is coming? <laughs> exactly. Totally freaked out. Um but yeah, I, I thought that CGI effect thing was was amazing. And again, it was, for me, one of those very interesting moments in the show where, and, and I think it, it lines up with what you were talking about with this phone sequence with the sheriff calling the other sheriff on the phone, um, is, is the way in which the show is very much balancing all of these additions of new characters and like this turn towards, you know, really primarily new characters because the majority of the screen time on these episodes with the exception of Colin McLaughlin is taken up by new actors a lot of the time. Um, They're balancing that with still this very clear affection for the characters of the old show, even if they aren't always there, right? Like it's like you could read the, the calling Sheriff Truman as sort of like a jokey reference to old TV. And I think that's very true. Um, but I also think it's like an acknowledgement of the fact that the audience really loves Sheriff Truman and they are sad that he's not there. And like, we kind of wish that he was, you know I mean? I, I feel like that's true. And there's something interesting going on with the Bob appearing in Coop's face in, in that same kind of tension where, it's utterly terrifying. Like when I figured out what was going on, because it, it is almost imperceptible, right? For like the first few seconds of that effect, you're just like, what's happening to Coop's face? Like it's, it's difficult to figure it out. And then once you figured it out, you're utterly terrified. And then you kind of get a hold of yourself and you're like, holy shit, it was amazing to see Frank Silva like appear at all, right? Like that you're, you're just, you're happy to get this appearance of an actor who's unfortunately passed away. Um, so there's a lot, you know, it's an emotional roller coaster that yeah, scene, but it's great. I, I wanted to, um, Emily Stevens at the AV Club has been doing a really great job um, with with her recaps. And I, full disclosure, I'm not like the hugest fan of the AV Club all the time, but she's been straight up killing it with the Twin Peaks write-ups and, and the way that she described, like, let's take a moment to acknowledge, like, if you think about the origins of Frank Silva's appearance on the original series and then to have him be carried over into this new series through like sheer like just the magic of effects and to have it totally work is like it's like 
kisses fingers like it's it's a beautiful mm. thing to have happen yeah I, there, there's a lot of amazing stuff as well just generally going on with uh, evil coop in the jail that we haven't got to yet like one one point i wanted to bring up here and i feel like we can we'll definitely keep talking about it in future episodes because it's been a pretty constant theme is how the evil coop stuff ends up plugging into like the episode's overall relation to uh surveillance as mm-hmm. a thing, because surveillance has been like a really common problem in the in all five episodes so far. You constantly have characters just sort of out of the blue looking up to the ceiling in different rooms to like find a camera watching them. Uh, this ha- has happened like three or four times at least. Um, and then in this episode, we get things like earlier in the episode, we get kind of an amazing shot of Brett Gelman as the casino manager uh, standing in this casino kind of uh, control room. And the whole back wall, this like widescreen shot, this whole back wall is all filled with, uh, you know, I don't know, 50 different surveillance images of the casino spread across the whole thing. And it's quite like disorienting. It's kind of amazing. And then later in this jail with Cooper, you also get the surveillance grid uh, as Cooper arrives in this space for the phone call. And And one thing that I found like super fascinating there is... That the surveillance stuff, like it's it's prevalence, it's sort of weird terror about everything. It it plugs into Lynch's larger kind of um terror slash fast slash fascination with like recording instruments generally and then technology like uh, at large. Um but uh so the surveillance stuff is sort of generally terrifying. And then what ends up happening in the scene with Evil Coop in the jail is that Evil Cooper is made you know, infinitely more terrifying for the fact that he he has complete control over this surveillance. Like, he, he is above it and outside of it and is completely able to, like, control it and disorient it and see it and understand it. And this gives him this, like, omniscience that I actually find kind of like a genius way to write an evil character for, like, 2017 is somebody who seems to be able to, like manipulate and control electronic devices that that sort of terrify and just confuse everybody else like i i think that's great maybe though it's like it's more that he's a part of it right Mm -hmm. and i think that's like Mm -hmm. the original series like he's literally made of electricity and like not plain semantics because like i think you touched on it for sure but the idea that these kind of evil entities which is the word that used earlier about the different kind of personalities or personas of uh kyle it's such a great word and to me like in the 20 in like post industrial revolution entities are made of electricity because they can travel through things they can travel into your home and they're mm-hmm. kind of communicating through like the like radios television but also like what you cook with and everything it's like incredibly disturbing Wait, wait, Justine, are you saying that Evil Cooper is part of the Internet of Things? <laughs> He's the, he is the Internet of Things. <laughs> that's an interesting I think that, idea. That's great. I, um... That makes sense to me. I should have made a reference to the microwave. He's in the microwaves, too. <laughs> <laughs> evil Cooper is an evil microwave. Funny that you connected Coop to the Internet of Things, because what I kept thinking of, and maybe this is because, again, I'm I'm a leftist, and so I spend some of my time doing things like listening to InfoSec podcasts. But like, you know, this whole notion of um, the, secu- the the security state and its ma- and its massive expansion. And I don't want to turn this into the Twin Peaks politics podcast. I swear to God, I'm going to keep this short. But um, this notion of um, the national security apparatus, particularly in the states, is so expanded and so omniscient that, um, you know, you can be unless you take specific steps, you can be tracked, you can be monitored, you can possibly be filmed. And um, this notion of 
Bob or Evil Coop or whatever he is, having evolved with the times to assimilate surveillance technology, feels, again, timely in a way that just, like, it just sandwiches that edge, as I like to say, for some reason, of, like, being timely and appropriate without quite being corny and, yeah. and didactic. And I, I appreciate that. Yeah, and no, I think that's totally right. And there's there's also something interesting there as well that we continue to have like these, I guess you could say maybe sort of more old school and yet obviously hyper powerful kind of national surveillance forms in the show, right? Like we have the Pentagon on the one hand and then we have um, the FBI on the other. And I actually think it's quite interesting because I've been trying to pay attention to the way that Lynch has been sort of formulating technology in these episodes. And uh, it's like that there's two sort of concepts of technology and they're kind of weirdly opposed. And on the one hand, it's like these these devices and machines that Lynch creates that are um, not specific to our to our particular time period. They're just kind of like off, and yet they are very clearly meant to stand in as sort of like. Um, you know, modern technology, like at the current kind of cutting edge, like for example, the cameras that are trained on the glass box in the opening episode, those don't look like real cameras. Those are not kind of current cameras. And yet they look like they're supposed to be very kind of technologically advanced. Um, same with like the different devices that Coop uses, even that kind of metal, that, that box that keeps getting called in this episode with the two blinking lights on it, right? Like it's a, it's a device, but it's not, it's not set to our time. And again, I actually think there's something genius about that because it's like these episodes 20 years from now, aren't going to be people looking back at them and being like, Oh, look, they were all using Apple products or whatever the crap it is. Right. That's, but that's one sort of side of the technology. Then the other side is like these, these scenarios in which they're filming um, computer screens and you have these like weirdly designed interfaces like the FBI interface uh, and the like database of fingerprints and stuff that look so cheesy and out of date and very weird and they all end up being associated with things like the FBI and the Pentagon and the police stations which I I find very funny I I don't know yeah whereas the the Jacoby thing even though he's using like a wind-up siren (laughs) type deal which can't believe we didn't mention uh, so not well, not wind up siren wiring like wind up like uh, gramophone dictaphone type deal. Um, despite <laughs> yeah. that, like Jacoby seems to be like interfacing with present, where because he's dealing with like a very very current media form that is like the, yeah that's true the, the YouTube like insane ranter jackass. Whereas like you know the you're right the, the, everyone in the in on the on the security end seems to be dealing with this, this very like old tech we we will have to wrap up in the relatively uh, sh- short future but i couldn't get through this without mentioning um one of my other favorite scenes of this episode which like i feel like the the, the comedic aspects of the new season has been maybe the most hit or miss for me like um the scene that i think is probably supposed to be comedic of um, of Dougie and the woman outside the bathroom. That's a confusing sequence. That's an extremely confusing <laughs> sequence for a lot of reasons, and I don't know how to feel about it, so I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, maybe that's... I don't... I just I just don't know. You're just but, throwing it out there as a callback till future episodes if it returns. Exactly. Uh, I, I'm feeling like and I'm hoping like it won't. Um, but I have to say... The sequence of um, of the other guy in Dougie's office being handed the green tea latte. Oh, genius. Is the hardest I've laughed besides Wally Brando. Oh, sh- crap. Sorry. 
since you're the first guest we've had, Justine, I have to get your opinion on Wally Brando. I am disturbed by Wally Brando. I don't know if I like it or not. <laughs> but like, I think about it every time I think about the new series, like it's one of the first images that comes into my head. And I'm like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with it. Like it's, 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 to I me, it's like the most disturbing sign. thing that has happened in the whole series. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I, just, I don't think it's bad. I don't know if it's good though. I just don't know. <laughs> I, like, I just, I just, I, I, I don't know. I like, I don't even have, I don't have coherent thoughts on it. I like, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Like, I, I just like, I, it haunts me. <laughs> Kate, Kate, for the rest yeah. of the season, can we just open every new guest segment with Wally Brando, yay or nay? <laughs> oh, let's do it. We're making a pledge right now, listeners. We're going to remember to do that. Definitely. Ugh. Um, yeah, that is, oh, Wally Brando. He's, I'm, I, I want him to come back. I'm excited. Um, all right. Okay. I have, I have two more things I wanted to say before we wrap up, but Simon, did you have a thought you were finishing there? I can't remember before we got caught up <laughs> on Wally Brando. Knows? I mean, who even knows? I mean, I just, I wanted to marvel at the green tea latte thing, which I think oh, is, that, was one oh, of their best comic moments so far. I loved that. No, I, the green tea, the look on that guy's face is genius. Um, I, okay, I wanted to point out just one quick thing because it's a perfect tidbit. Uh, so as I'm sure people who are listening to this podcast have put together, there is like an amazing team of Twin Peaks people out in the world just like figuring out connections and doing all of this crazy work to like put things together. And some of it is interesting. Some of it is sort of like, well, sure, those are maybe connections or maybe they're just coincidences sort of things. But um kudos to whoever caught this and put this on the internet the sequence where coop is uh crying as he's looking at the little boy if you go back and watch that the footage of the little boy in at least one of the shots is backwards it's being it's the image is reversed it's not playing forwards it's playing backwards because you can tell because the way that the little boy blinks is is like weird it's out of sync you can see isn't that crazy? I, I was like, what? And I, I watched for it the second time, and it's totally accurate. Oh, that's just like um, how um, in the in the first run of episodes, we didn't talk about this, but in the um, in the interrogation sequence when Evil Coop is talking to uh, Lynch and uh, Ferrer, one, oh, yes, yeah. one of the varies that he says is like, like it's it's reversed. It's like Irvi or Irv or whatever. He says it backwards. Yeah. Yeah, which we didn't talk about, but like clearly, like they're doing something with with reverse speech and, and video that, again, we don't really know what to make of yet, but worth noting. No, I, I just thought that was like a really smart touch that is a, a very small tidbit for fans, and I, I thought that was very fun. Um, the other thing I wanted to just get on the record really quickly, and it makes me laugh actually, uh, and I say and I say all of this in like the best spirit because um, when Simon and I talked about playtime on the podcast ages ago. <laughs> We got a ton of feedback about that. Like, hilariously, that was, like, the one thing that everybody wanted wanted to write to us about was, like, defending Tati against the onslaught that is us two nerds not liking Tati, which cracks me up. But anyway, so we had many interesting discussions about that. That was all good. But I, there was some sort of funniness happening on the internet around the most recent episodes with uh, Dougie kind of wandering through these, like, modern spaces as this confused figure. And people saying, oh, isn't this interesting? It seems a lot like uh, Tati, a lot like uh, Monsieur Hulot of uh, Tati fame. And um, I, for me, I just felt the need to, like, I had to address this at least somewhat because 
I do think that there are interesting connections there, certainly. I mean, I think obviously, like, any figure kind of bumbling around in the space of, in, in the face of, like, kind of strange modern spaces is going to read as a connection to something like Tati, and I think that's fine. Um, but I would say that there, we could have a long discussion about all of the ways in which there are still very, very clear differences there that, that just simply don't map onto each other. Like, the, um, the Tati stuff is so, antiseptic like these modern spaces that monsieur hello ends up in it's like they're all about the sort of um antiseptic like like a blank affect like no feeling uh completely replaceable spaces that he ends up in where everything looks exactly like everything else uh and there's very little emotion the characters are kind of like a psychological and and for lynch it's like you can a lot that's all very different like in, in lynch characters are asychological as well but the universe itself is very much invested in this question of kind of like human psychology and, and mythology and like psychoanalysis almost um and then also there's no such thing as like an antiseptic space in lynch like even even these new spaces these like modern building spaces that we end up in they're not um i don't know it's like like they're certainly not like the tati spaces they're very like lived in and and odd and uncanny in a way that's quite different than what tati is doing but i just wanted to put this on there so now we can get like 400 people writing back to us on twitter about that but yeah i just want to throw something in because i feel like i've just found my people because i don't like tati (laughs) yes like i can i can i can vaguely respect play time just for its technical accomplishment yes. but that's i just i just don't like it i it's don't the twin like peaks it. podcast for people who fall asleep watching playtime in film class oh my god justine <laughs> that's so perfect you you definitely have found your people this is and 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 people are going to be enraged people are going to write to you now and be like how can you not like that? you're gonna lose your twitter verification <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Um, yeah, I just, we could have a whole podcast. Maybe we should do like a bonus podcast, you guys, where the three of us sit around and talk about how David Lynch is not like Tati. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a good, we could have like an anti Tati podcast itself. Just like, we could. I, I'm just picturing, I don't know if, if you guys know what the bars look like on iTunes when like you can see which episodes have been listened yeah. to more. I just picture like our bonus Tati episode with like half a bar. <laughs> No, but maybe it'll be the most listened to because people will hate listen. Exactly. They're going to rage listen to our anti-Tati podcast. Oh, oh, man. Whatever. You can't well, you can't spell Tati without tit. Screw that guy. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> oh, wait. You can't. I can't spell. <laughs> it's, this, you, it's, it's a tit. Not- <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. This is completely going off the rails. I'm so sorry. <laughs> When I brought up the Tati thing, I, I that could not have predicted that that's where it would go. But I am very pleased with this turn of events. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention about this episode, I think, is as much as I was distracted by the Caleb Landry Jones uh, casting, um, when I first saw the the initial cast list, sorry, the full cast list, and saw that Amanda Seyfried was on it, um, I think I even said this to you, Kate. Like, she struck me as such a perfect choice for like if there was going to be a new generation of like Lynchian heroine, tragic or otherwise, she seemed to be like a really good choice. And I think this episode bears that out. Like she fits right in as sort of the third generation of, um, of, of double R diner people. 
and Absolutely, yeah, and yeah. just and that shot obviously of her in this drug induced like euphoria is one of the most stunning of the revival so far. So I, I, I had to shout that out. I also I'm very curious to see if uh, Jane Levy, who shows up for I think like one or two lines and about thirty seconds of screen time in this episode. Um, I'm very curious to see if she gets more to do because I've I've loved her in like several very different things. Wait, and who is this again? Which character? Jane Levy is if you uh, if you never saw the the sitcom Suburgatory or um, the Evil Dead remake or Don't Breathe, like those are all like to- very different projects that she's been great in. Um, and she she's in the bar sequence when um, I guess the Horn Offspring, which is another thing we haven't uh, discussed. Um, is the one like very like vi- like openly and disgustingly like assaulting this woman? She's sort of looking on at the other uh, booth. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's, it's considering her like recent semi prominence, it would be surprising to me if she didn't get more to do. But anyway, uh, I also hope we continue to get stand up comedy from the coroner because I enjoyed every line out of her mouth i was like this jane adams yeah genius yeah jane adams do, she was she killed that do you not recognize her i recognize her as the woman who played the pregnant wife in wonder boys but that was for many years ago and i probably have seen her in a million things she's since, also for some in reason. uh she's also in todd salon's happiness oh yeah she's in yeah. a she's like she, she's like she's been omnipresent as a character actress and yes she her scene is very funny and she's been She's a nice break from like like let's be honest like most of the new female people have been like pretty young things who have been terrorized in one way or another so it's nice to get someone who's not that. Well, I guess it w- the one bonus of us having taken a while to get this episode uh, organized to record is that we don't actually have to wait that long for the new episode because I'm very excited now to see what is going to happen next week. Yeah, uh Justine, was there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrapped up? Not that I can think of. Um, I'm the only thing I would suggest is if you guys really want to continue this podcast, it'd be super interesting to redo every episode of the series. I know that's like oh. crazy, but like, oh, like, like the it, new yeah, series, seeing it because yeah. like when you did the the original Twin Peaks podcast, like you knew what to anticipate, what was happening, that's whatever. Mm-hmm. This one is kind of like you're thrown into the the pit to figure things out. I I bet a lot of what we're watching now, like in a greater context, knowing what comes next uh, will really change your relationship to it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great idea that we're absolutely not doing. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, I'm not sure that that would be able to do that, but, um, but it actually is a great idea. I mean, maybe we could do like just one episode, like a, a couple weeks later or something, when we'd re- we'll rewatch the series and do like a wrap up episode or something that might be worth considering. But um, some of us have jobs, Justine. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> I think don't we all have jobs? Oh, I'm totally joking. I know, I know, you're, I, I, to I know what your callback is. Oh, Twitter. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks to everyone for listening. I, I always mean to do this at the top of the show, and then I always forget, and that's why we can't have nice things. Please rate and review the show on iTunes because it means a lot to us, um, and especially to Kate. And uh, yeah, so far we have we have yet. Okay, no, actually, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna just mention I'm tempting fate, but we have yet to get a review from any country that wasn't a five star review on iTunes. So please don't break our streak. All right. 
but we would appreciate more and we always appreciate constructive feedback mm-hmm. and uh yeah we hope that this hasn't been totally I, I saw the ticker going a little long on the time for this but considering it was a little bit late and considering how long you've had to wait for a new episode i thought it would be okay to go a little long even though i'm screwing myself for editing so I hope you appreciate my sacrifice as I watch those seconds tick by and then my future seconds tick away, as I know those are, those are seconds I'm going to have to process. But I'm just making it worse as I'm describing the problem to you, so I'm going to stop talking. Uh, thank you, Justine, for joining us. You're on Twitter, at Red Room Rantings. You are verified and with good reasons, so congratulations. Thank you. I really appreciate your praise. <laughs> Soon those uh, soon that swag's gonna be rolling in, hey Justine. Swag everywhere. I want so much swag. You should try to get some of Lynch's coffee. I would Ooh. love co- like send me if you if you have coffee, send it. <laughs> Just you get your random bags of coffee from people in the mail. I love it. Do it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna make this happen. But not Starbucks coffee. You're you're a former barista, so not that. Shit. I'll take it. I'll take it. all right thank you everyone for listening uh you can follow kate on twitter at cinnamon c-i-n-e-m-e-n-t and uh, you can find me on twitter at hollow minds spelled like it sounds and uh thanks to sorted cinema slash goombastom for hosting this podcast you can find us there and of course on itunes etc thank you so much for listening we'll be back and hopefully a little bit less than a week. Boom! Yeah. All right, stop.